For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. On February the 6th, 2023, a massive earthquake hit southeastern Turkey and northern Syria. It was magnitude 7.8. But it's not just the magnitude that matters, it's also about how shallow the quake hits. And it's, of course, about population density in the communities affected and how the buildings there are built. Now, at the epicentre in Turkey, The city of Gaziantep's famous 2,000-year-old fort was just one of the buildings that collapsed or had to be demolished. I'll share some pictures so you can see the before and after. It's just so, feels so symbolic to see this thing. Like, from the second century, it's lasted all this time and now it's rubble. But that's just one of thousands and thousands. The region is one of the most active earthquake zones, but this quake was the deadliest in Syria since 1822. And in Turkey, it killed more people than any other earthquake in 1,500 years. Official figures put the death toll beyond imagination. It's 50,000 people, or more than 50,000 people. It's completely, you can't imagine it, right? And to make matters worse, it had been a really bad winter. I'm sure you saw the heartbreaking footage on the news. Rescue workers trying to find survivors in the rubble, people displaced and sheltering in tents with no blankets. It's absolutely grim. But as it slips out of the headlines, it doesn't mean the problems disappear, of course. Now, you might be wondering, why am I talking about this on a fashion podcast? Well, firstly, there's a huge textiles and manufacturing connection because Turkey is a big producer. And while the factories are mostly elsewhere, Gaziantep and other affected provinces are actually significant for the sector too. There's also a lot of cotton produced in Turkey. And Sourcing Journal reported that farmers and programme partners of the Better Cotton Initiative were among the victims. And also that many ginning facilities and spinners were based in the affected areas. And with the numbers of people displaced and made vulnerable, this is obviously going to affect fashion supply chains longer term. Again from Sourcing Journal, for now, the sector is in triage mode. And they said that even some of the undamaged mills were being used to house survivors while they paused production. The other link to the fashion world is that the quake happened just before Fashion Month. 10 days before London Fashion Week, which is where I was. And my guest today is the British-Turkish designer Bora Aksu. Now, he's actually from the other side of the country. He grew up in Izmir and moved to London to study fashion in his 20s. But like anyone with Turkish or Syrian family at this time, felt the trauma really deeply, of course. How do you just carry on as normal? How do you have a fashion show? (laughs) What do you do? On a practical level, do you just cancel it? But realistically, what good would that actually do? Do you, I don't know, try to compartmentalise or block it out? Or do you make it your focus and use your platform to raise money? There's obviously no correct answer, but these are all the questions. Another Turkish designer in London, Dilara Findikolo, wrote a heartfelt letter to her showgoers and she left it on the seats. I was at her show too, and I kept it. I'm going to read out a paragraph for you. She wrote... Due to my Turkish heritage, I think I am a huge problem solver and I think I have the power to find answers, but this time I don't. I feel helpless, she wrote. I feel speechless more than ever. 
after what Mother Nature caused in my hometown. I've been drowning in the fine line between my craft and the disaster for the last two weeks, but I decided to do what I do best and use my voice as much as I can. And then she had a QR code on the press release and she was asking people to make donations. But this is the context. It's so full on, isn't it? Now, the rest of Fashion Week didn't ignore it. At the Oxfam show, which opened London Fashion Week, it was a partnership with eBay and all the stuff that was shown on the runway was then auctioned off and the proceeds from that went to the earthquake relief effort. Bora began his show with a minute silence to acknowledge the victims. It was really moving. I think everybody had tears in their eyes. And I'd been watching his Instagram while he raised awareness and he was encouraging donations. And so I reached out to him and, and asked if he would have a chat to me about this context. And he generously agreed. He's wonderful. And while this conversation begins with the heavy context of the earthquake, it's not all turmoil and sadness. It's actually a thoughtful, quite beautiful discussion about fashion and family and heritage, craft and upcycling. He was an upcycler from way back. And the practical work of trying to be more sustainable as an independent fashion designer. Bora has been doing this for years, long before sustainability became the next big thing. Now, if you'd like to make a donation to the ongoing relief and humanitarian work in Turkey and Syria, I'll put some links in the show notes, which, as usual, you can find at www.thewardrobecrisis.com. But now, let's hear from Bora Aksu. Welcome to the podcast, Bora Aksu. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Thank you very much for inviting me into your studio. Actually, it's quite lovely. We're surrounded by your books collection. I know. This is my little den that where I do my research and stuff. Like when I'm in the studio, it's a funny thing. I mean, I travel a lot. Like I cannot design in other places. I have to come back to my studio and do the creative work here. It just became my secret place. Now, we're recording this on the last day of London Fashion Week, and I was lucky enough to attend your beautiful show on Friday. It's also been this week of really harrowing news that's come Mm -hmm. out of Turkey and Syria, where on February the 7th or the 6th, there was an enormous magnitude 7.8 earthquake. There's actually been another, reports of another earthquake in Hatay last night. So I just wanted to start there. You held a minute silence at the beginning Mm. of your show. Can you tell us why? I mean, it's so devastating emotionally as well as like all the other things. But it was, when it happened, it was like 10 days before the show. And I know people, not my family or friends, but manufacturers and those guys like live there. They have families. I have contacts there. And I mean, you, we should just say you're Turkish, not yeah, from I'm, that region yeah. that was affected, but Turkey's I'm, an I'm enormous Turkish. country, actually. Yeah, exactly. Like, listeners, if you're not in front of a map and you've never been, geographically, Turkey is big. It stretches from the Mediterranean right to the mountains. It borders Iran to the east and Syria and Iraq to the southeast. Just give us some context about where the earthquake happened. So the earthquake happens in the east Turkey, like on the border of Syria, but it was because it was so powerful, it had such an impact on such a big area. I grew up in Izmir more on the neighbors of the Greece side, like where the islands are and close to Istanbul. So all my friends and family always live that. As you mentioned, like it's such a massive country, but I did travel and I went to, for example, Gaziantep not so long ago and just met with some wonderful people there. So it's kind of like really beyond my mind and understanding 
how this happens. And I know it happens. It happens all around the world, but it's also in a way that, I mean, I don't know, showing us that the Whenever we think we actually conquered the world and be bigger than everything, we actually, nothing against nature, really. Like we just, I mean, we saw that during the pandemic and uh, now we seeing that again in the, this result of the earthquake, it's just, you feel completely helpless and hopeless, even though you try to do things that you just feel like what you're doing is nothing which I'm not saying it should stop us because that's the that's the least we can do. But yeah, it's a very heartbreaking thing. Like I think a week before, like I was in touch with a friend who was there, like a designer, and she was saying, oh, I need to go because I can't find my friend, this, this other friend. And I said, where are you going to go? Like she was like, no, I need to be at that digging area because she's under the building. So I, I want to know if she's... I mean, this is the reality of the life. Like when you hear it on the news or, I don't know, read it on the news stories, you just don't understand that it's actually so personal at the same time. Just because it doesn't happen to us doesn't mean it's not happening. So when it comes to that personal level of, okay, people are looking for their, I don't know, sisters, kids or grandmothers or aunties or friends, that's then make it such a reality. But because it doesn't happen to me, it's so hard to also comprehend in a way. But yeah, so my whole mind kind of devastated in a sense that just before the fashion week and then we were thinking, what can we do apart from, I don't know, try to help people through charities or people on the ground. So that was the mood I was in Mm. just before the Mm. show. I'm so sorry for what everyone is going through from that region and on the ground there. We have a mutual friend, Tamara Jinchik, who is the founder of Fashion Roundtable. Mm. She's British, but her father is from Turkey, was born there. Mm -hmm. And she has many cousins, family members right there in the epicenter of where it's been happening She's devastated. And and we've been talking a lot this week around how do you jump between doing your fashion work mm. and then you pick up the phone and there's more news. In her case, it's personal news. People at family members are saying, mm. telling them what they're doing to rush supplies to people on the ground, finding out if people have lost their homes, mm. worrying about extended community that are homeless, maybe don't have enough food, are they dead? How on earth do you then go to a fashion show? Well, we did. We did that this week and you mm. staged one. We're going to talk about your amazing work and that's actually what we're here for. But I do think this context is important to note because how do we go on when we, we're lucky enough for life to go on, right? If you're not mm. there in the middle of it. And yet, how do you make those choices as a creative? Because we're in a creative industry where part of what we do is comment on culture our relationship to one another and to mm. the world, aren't we? How do you navigate that? Were you tempted to cancel? Uh, I didn't. Th- I mean, the thing with, uh, I think, fashion in general, it just pursued as a kind of like a fun thing. Like, you know, it's always involves with, I don't know, like clothes or parties or celebrities. And that made this image that it's almost like an in- entertainment industry, which is not like, I mean, it's it's basically our business and our living and that's so hard to it's I think easier to I don't know like cancel a party or a wedding but it's so hard to cancel a fashion show because it's all 
so much work and hardship goes into that. And it's also define our next, I don't know, six, seven months of our business. So it's really hard to just skip that. But like saying that, I think there should be the element of respect and understanding and raising awareness. I mean, people don't have even things. And bear in mind, I mean, this also blow my mind. It was such a hard winter there, like when this happened. So just leave everything on the side. People were just without blankets, like they don't have like a roof over them. They, they had no heaters. And as you mentioned, I mean, I admire Tamara so much because she just went there and she just went buy heaters for the for the people and then she tried to buy them suppliers and all this stuff. But obviously in, in cases that you can't do it, you can't just be there on the ground and help them on first hand. But I think yeah, just being aware and understanding and mm. that showing one minute silence is a... I don't know, for my way of showing that I'm there with them somehow. Yeah, 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 it's difficult. And it was a constant echo through the Fashion Week this season. The, interestingly, Fashion Week opened officially with the Oxfam thrifted mm. secondhand show, which I yeah. thought was very interesting, putting sustainability first on the agenda. Mm. And there were QR codes and posters around the venue about raising money so it's not like fashion is turning a blind eye but it is a difficult thing to to join together mm. the creativity of a runway and the celebratory aspect of showing our new collection within this difficult political context but there's always a difficult political mm. context right i mean we saw it with ukraine today actually this morning ukrainian fashion week or part of ukrainian fashion week is being held through the bfc in london yeah I mean, the thing with fashion, I think it's such a, you don't really need words for fashion. It's such a visual thing. So you approach so many people mm. all around the world without actually speaking their language. So which is, an, I think, an amazing tool, a platform as well. I think same as music, I guess, like it just reach beyond borders. And so it's really important to do that, but also understanding that there's things it's not just about, I think fashion became more, more more and more than just, I don't know, trends or which color is in. And, <laughs> you know, that's not, I don't think really anyone cares about that anymore. It's, it's not about that. They, you know, like we want to know when we're creating a fashion collection, are we, how much we are harming the world? And it's so hard to say you sustainable you might be in certain parts i'm trying to do it with my fabrics but am i really like if i'm dying that let's say the old fabric i found then i'm using water all these chemicals um, you know like you need to kind of think really logically and in the long run like what you creating and the impact it has in the world and for me sustainable i mean i know we are not right now talking about sustainability but we're always talking about it on here <laughs> <laughs> no for me it's just uh, using as little source as possible for future generation i think that's what it is like if you're producing thing and thinking that it's actually you're not harming i mean you're in a denial really but you can do your bits and you can do you know as much as you can but if a brand comes and say we are 100%, I'm sure there's brands like that, but 100% sustainable is such a hard 
thing to say. I would never be able to say that I'm 100% sustainable, for example. It's interesting that you bring that up because I was doing research about you and I found an interview from 10 years ago talking about you using recycled natural and hand-woven fabrics, even back then. And the writer had said, you don't shout about being ethical, but you're mindful of your impact. That's just what you were saying there. Does yeah. that feel right to you? So I haven't changed much <laughs> in the last 10 years, but it's true. I think that's what it is. I mean, to be honest, like when I started my brand, my whole idea was not actually creating mass-produced items. It was just creating things because I grew up in a family that, like my mom, my grandma, my auntie, they all kept their stuff. Like there was like these wooden chests with my grandma dresses and things like that, which passed from generation to generation. Of course, that was a different time. And of course, that, that was the time that things were really precious because they didn't have any. Like my grandma had only two dress, one day dress and one dress that she could wear if there's a special occasion. So from that, I think we come to a world that everything is just worn once. So I, my whole kind of design philosophy at the beginning is actually creating back that whole grandma attitude of creating things that you can actually pass through generations. It doesn't have to be like a trend-oriented garment. It just needs to be precious. And I used to have these... Now it's so hard to do. I used to have like little things sewn into each garment. It was almost like a secret with, between the customer who buys it. I know it and it, the garment knows it. So it's like a little <laughs> triangle. I love that you say the garment knows. <laughs> you put, you imbue personality like into the Like a pieces. little button or like a little lace that no one sees from outside. It's just like our little secret. And I thought that's so important to share it. Like when it's such a small quantity of production you could also achieve that and then make things special i love that it's beautiful you're obviously a collector when i walked in i was like i've got those trays yes. <laughs> you've got a pile there's more than 10 <laughs> of different pieces of venetian giltwood which are like we'll share some pictures i'll send share some pictures of mine of um i'm a collector yeah. i'm borderline hoarder I think. <laughs> you obviously also save and in this, you are like a previous podcast guest. We'll share a link and get you to listen back to the gorgeous episode we did with Akira Isagawa, who's a Japanese-Australian designer who is a massive hoarder. He saves every vintage scrap mm -hmm. and then makes extremely beautiful things out of them. But I was interested to see that in the show notes to this season's collection, you talked about using saved, mm. old, what were your words? I think you said old, unused and rejected fabrics. fabrics. So I'll tell you the story of that. So this, I think, started before pandemic because we used to go to, there's a show called uh, Premier Vision. Oh yeah, in Paris. Yeah, in the Paris. big textile expo. Big textile. So you meet with all manufacturers from mainly Italy, uh, France, or all around the world, like who is accepted to be there to show their also knitwear designers and print designers. So each time, like when we go to these manufacturers, they always want to show you the the new fabrics they design or just came fresh from the mill. And then I started getting interested in these. What about the stocks? What about all those like miles and miles of fabrics that's sitting in stockroom, but no one wants it. And some of them goes back to honestly 30, 40 years old. So we started with this one company called uh, Ratti in Italy. Oh, 
Mr. Tamburini. I, <laughs> I was telling you before that I co-host this podcast with Simone oh, Cipriani right. for the UN. We interviewed Sergio Tamburini, who is the owner of Ratti, which is a very important, big luxury, and luxury and they have a massive stockroom with like so I want to go massive, in there. Oh gosh, oh my God. like it's, it's amazing. Like prints and like taffetas and this and then it started from there to go into different manufacturers because all of them has stocks and all of them like doesn't want to show these stocks because there was this one company in France like their stocks is actually the sun goes in there so like you know when you, the sun kind of reacts with the fabric over you the years you like that I love that it just <laughs> faded that, but yeah. no one likes that but you'd be, so, that would be attractive to you yeah. and so I was like I want this and they're like Are you sure yeah I said I, and how much is it like how, how many meters are like and they say okay there's 65 meters on this I say okay I'll take it you know what like if I can only produce I don't know 20 garments that's it like I will only have 20 garments from that. So this was the whole idea and it just grow and grow. Like it even gone into yarns this season with the knitwear. And it's just actually we have, my point is we have enough probably for the next, I don't know, 10 generation right now. And I don't know why we in this stress of we have to produce everything again, new, like new fabrics, new, I don't know, cottons, new this, new that. We have, we have, like, I mean, if you dig all these stores and the, these companies, they have stocks and you can even get them cheaper because they kind of damage. I think it's this idea, this concept, if it's filtered through the consumer's mind, then when they see something like, oh, why this is like faded like that, but that's the beauty of it. If they see that beauty, then I think maybe we we manage to do something. You've got the perfect aesthetic for that because you've got this, I want to use the word precious. Did you just use that word or is that just popped in my head? Either way, <laughs> there's something about a real reverence for the preciousness of beautiful fabrics. I know you've used hand looms before, but like amazing silks and embroideries and that very tactile feminine. I don't want to say vintage because I don't feel like that does it justice, mm. but there is this understanding of the beauty of a delicate fabric or an old fabric or one that feels that way, right? Mm. It doesn't work the same way if you are churning out Supreme. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess each brand has their own philosophy and their, I think the fact that it fits with my brand or maybe I created my brand around it. I mean, it could be both ways, like, you know, a chicken or egg story. Like, but I think it's also my brand's philosophy was this, like from beginning, as I said, like these little details sewn into garments. So I guess my brand was always about that. It's just a tasting and thing. And since I involved with fashion, because it was all, only about drawings for me before. I, I could just draw and draw when as I was a, a child. Yeah. yeah, My mom still kept some of my drawings and I didn't draw like, I don't know, mountains and houses. It was always like women in my family and their, I don't know, platform shoes and this and that. So I had this interest, I think, since I was a child. And I think when I was a teenager, I discovered that, oh, okay, this, I don't know, 2D 
things can be treated garments. You know, there was like another journey started this when I started getting into fashion and the fabrics and creating these things that you can walk around rather than just seeing it on a paper. And this how my illustrations become more like a more fashion illustrations. And then, then I decided to study and come to London, which was years ago. Who opened your mind to that idea? Did, do you remember... So you left Turkey to come to St. Martin's and study mm-hmm. in London, yes. right? Yeah. What, how did you hear about it? What made you think that's a good, that's for me? I mean, this is end of 90s. So I, we didn't, in Turkey, we didn't have a fashion school. I wanted to do something like learn fashion A to Z, how to construct mm-hmm. a garment. When I was in high school, I was doing internships in these tailors just to understand the construction because there was literally no place I could learn. And there was... You probably learned so much doing that though. There's I kids did. now who've never learned any construction. I think it's so important to learn skill. Like it's so, so important. And I think creativity, of course, maybe comes natural, but you need to somehow nurture it. And then there was this really... He's not doing it anymore, but Rufat Ozbek. Oh, he is incredible. I'd love to interview him. For listeners who don't know about Rufat Ozbek, could you give us a a very brief description? Yeah. Rufat Ozbek was a Turkish designer who based in London and who graduated from Central St. Martins. And his collections were like so inspirational at the time. Like in his inspirations usually go back to... Turkish traditions and cultures, but he modernized it in his own unique way. And it was, it was so, so popular. And I remember being in Turkey and just looking at these magazines and like thinking, he went to study at St. Martin's and he was from Turkey. So this must be the place to go. Like in my kind of Does he house know? child. Have you told he doesn't him? know, but if you talk to him, please tell him. <laughs> so I think I... I must have mentioned this in one of the interviews. Maybe he read it. I don't know. But, you know, like you always need someone that opened the way before. And then he was kind of my source of, let's say, inspiration. And that's why I thought like, okay, maybe this is the way to go. Like maybe I should go there. And I only came here with a file of drawings. I had (laughs) nothing else. And Wendy Dagworthy, who was at the head of the St. Martin's course at that time, she believed in me somehow. You know, you need that giving a chance moment. I love that you said two things there that struck me. One was that the importance of seeing that someone's done what you want to do before you. If you mm. can't see it, you can't be it. And that's why it's so important for us to, just on sustainability, show that it's possible. It mm. just proves to people that there's a path. But the other one is having the importance of having someone believe in you and give you that yeah. confidence when you're starting out. It's, it's such a treat, isn't it? Mm. And often those people don't know. I mean, it's funny that I asked you, do you think Rifat Osbeck knows? And maybe he doesn't. And he, maybe he doesn't. But and there could be people out there that we've influenced and we have no idea. And it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's what they represent. Like if it speaks to you, they don't, I mean, it's so important that you have that, I don't know, like inspiration that someone did it so you could do it. It's just that belief. It creates a belief in you. Right out of St. Martin's, 20 years ago nearly now, you started your own label. Why did you do that and not choose to, for example, try and go and work for a big luxury house in Paris? Actually, I had an interview on my last year of St. Martin's. And if you read that, my 
aim was to go and work for a fashion house. It was Which just a, it was I wanted to work for Balenciaga at the time in Paris. Balenciaga was a different ball game then. Let's not go into that, but it was just one of my kind of aim. But I didn't know there was a dynamic in London, especially with the new designers that which I was part of it. When I graduated, I was given an award by British Fashion Council. Like, and then in six months, I had to do my own label show at the official schedule of London Fashion Week. I think this does not happen in, in other fashion capitals, I believe. But in London, because it's so much about the newness and the new talent or the new generation. So for me, like just freshly graduated and then doing a fashion show, but not thinking if it's going to be a business was a major thing. Like, so I didn't actually plan to have my own business, but I just throw myself into it. And again, like my first show, like I was thinking, okay, I was giving this opportunity that was a sponsorship, but this might be my first and last collection. So what I, did you make? I know, like it was like, I basically made everything that I thought represents me because I thought like maybe I should, this would be my last collection. And in 10, 15 years, I could look back and I could be proud. I think it's so important to do things that, I think knowing yourself is very important as a building a design identity. But after knowing your, I think identity, sticking to it is another another thing. I want to come back to that because I think that's also a very important thread in your work, but something I wish we saw more of, a consistency of signature and point of view rather than leaping around with some mm. <laughs> hot pants one season, <laughs> ball gown the next. But give us a taste of some of the things that you presented, if you can remember. I did actually, it was like a mixture of uh, military, old military things, 70s leather bags and Victorian dresses, but just imagine them not as items, but imagine them blend in a blender. So I had these bags taken out from his form and turned into corsets and little pieces. You were pieces. upcycling? Yeah. Then? It, that, yeah, that really? was my... Really? From vintage pieces? Yeah, I from didn't know vintage that. pieces, but it was not like, I don't know, turning a bag into a bag. I was turning a bag. Into, Using the materials. Into, yeah. Into, into other things. Really? Like, uh, Amazing. And then like these kind of chiffony, lacy things and then old military jackets. I customized them and so literally not thinking about production as you can tell. No. And, <laughs> totally <laughs> impossible to produce no. it. But just doing things that I love, like that was high point and low point at the same time because after that show, which got really good respond. And then I start getting orders. It was from Liberties and then it was from these shops from Hong Kong and Japan. I didn't know how to produce any of those. Like it was just such a panic thing. And how many people in your team? Oh my God, all my friends were in my team at that time. Everyone I know was in my team. And then we were all doing it day and night, like producing things. And, and then I remember it went to Liberties and it sold out. And then they saying, can you make this again? I was like, oh, I don't think I can. <laughs> I, said, I think, you know, like that, because that was the whole idea. So 
because it, I could not produce it. Physically, I could not produce it again. Or it will take me six months when the season ends. So that doesn't <laughs> make any sense. St. Martin's is great in terms of, I think, pushing your designer identity in a way that you could never, I think, experience in other platforms. But on the other hand, because you have no idea of the business side, I wish we had some sort of information but then if we had that information, would I be that creative? That's another problem. You know, like it's just, mm. would I be, I don't know, customized 70s leather bags and turn them into tops? Like maybe I wouldn't because then I will think of all the logical aspects. So maybe it was good that I didn't know. Then I built my brand on that. You had your first studio in Brick Lane, is that right? Yes. What was, was it like there then in the early days? It was. When you figured the, out production. <laughs> oh my God, that was, the studio was the size of this table, I think, like maybe twice, but it was tiny. They had a pattern table and a machine, but you could only walk around it. Like you literally, we just didn't have space. It was a place also, I was on the floor in Brick Lane that there was all accountants they probably really amused. Could have helped you. Could have been good. <laughs> because we were doing fittings in the corridors because that was the only place. So it was their fun time. They all come out and watch <laughs> our fittings. So it was an entertainment time. I was there like, I think, two years at the beginning. It was, I still remember it. And it had the corridor, had the most brightest yellow. And sometimes... The during, walls. Yeah. <laughs> And sometimes nighttime, it hurts your eyes. Like you just, when you try to, but it keeps us awake, I think. So it was. <laughs> yeah, there was the color of energy. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. All right. When did you figure out that you were on the right path? Probably from the respond. I think I knew that this is what I should be doing and I should carry on, which was not a hard task for me because it came natural to me and it was. I always knew I had to stick to my guns. Like I just, even though it was, I don't know, either it's in trend or it's not in trend. In this sense, I think London is an amazing place. It lets you be an individual as a designer or as a person. And so it was for me, I had my own niche and carrying on with something that you actually love doing rather than forcing yourself to be in... Mm different boxes I think is so much easier so it was yeah I liked how you talked before about consistency and sticking to your vision because I think it's actually quite a hard thing to do because fashion's pace is so frenetic mm. and I was thinking about why is everything latex right now so everything is latex and mm. a bit BDSM but if mm. you're not into that then are you out of the mm. trend cycle. And if you are into that, then next time when it's gone, will you be out of, exactly. you know, not in vogue? How do you go your own way consistently when all around you are leaping towards latex mm. masks? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I think you need like, to... Like, do you care? Or do you just think, oh, whatever, they do their thing, I do mine? I, I think now I always say, like, everyone, I think, do their thing, but, like, it's more important what you want to do. But this comes with, I think, maturity as well. And as I mentioned before, like, I think discovering your design identity, who you are, before you actually start designing is a major, major thing. All creatives need that kind of light bulb moment. I think, like, you need to know in life that things suddenly make sense and you know you know who you are and you know what you're doing. 
Did your the women in your family teach you anything about that? Oh my God, my mom. My mom is really important in a sense that she she's a doctor. My mom, I mean, she's retired now. And when she was graduated from the medical science and then went to East Turkey to do her, you know, they have to do this like kind of two years work, maybe not here, but in Turkey, they have to go somewhere and work for two years and then go back to their own city. So my mom also is from Izmir. And then she went there and then she always tell me like when I was a child, like she always had this idea of a certain way of dressing. She wanted to wear certain things, but she couldn't find them or she couldn't afford them. She was a knitter as well, my mom. So she knit her own, all these sort of Audrey Hepburn style, slim fits, like knitted dresses, like uh, short jackets, like uh, box jackets and stuff. Wow. Like, and then, so her, her photos is always was on my inspiration board, like with her hair, like all the way up here. I don't know how, like a beehive, like, mm. so she was not into it any professional way, but she was like watching her when I was growing up and just wearing all these things that actually other people not wearing and because she created them and, and I could see how she was making them. Like she worked on something like for a month because she was also full-time in work so weekend she was just knitting and I could see how it formed and then she wore it to a, a ball with go with my dad and then she had all these wigs and stuff that <laughs> and then it was just so inspiring for me to see that she could you know create that. This new collection was inspired by Wednesday Adams <laughs> but also a visit that you made to the Musée d'Orsay and Edvard Munch. How does that work? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was actually, it started from, you know, like as designers, we always have to find new inspiration every season. So this was like a couple of months ago, I went to Paris just because I consume all the museums here. So I needed to go <laughs> you ran out. Somewhere, somewhere else. So I went to Musée d'Orsay and there was the Edward Munch. The scream, but no. But not the scream. I mean, all the That's the only really one I know. <laughs> yes. And that's the famous one, but. I went to see his early work when he was only painting his sisters and his family. And he had so much kind of trauma during his childhood. So he lost his mom and then his sister at such an early age, the sister that he really loved. So he kept painting them when he was growing older. The things that really affected him, like his his mom in his her sickbed, that subject painted like several times. I really inspired by the emotional side of Edward and how he was an outcast because all his work was rejected, like at the beginning, like they even, when it, when it was displayed in the exhibition, they remove it next day because it was such a scandal. How can you, I don't know, paint about death? This is, we're talking about end of 1800s. And so I was kind of like, Oh, wow. Like he really stick to his guns because he, first of all, they were saying like your paintings never finish. It looks unfinished, but that he didn't want them to look like finished. He didn't want them to be polished. Oh, I love hearing these stories about people's creative struggles. <laughs> I feel like I have them myself. <laughs> no, we all have it, I think. And then, but he said, I want to create emotion. I didn't want a polished painting, like photography. Like I, God, it's, it's such a thing, isn't it, to say, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. I'm going to do it. When everyone tells you you're wrong, 
even his own family, his dad was, I think he burned some of his paintings and stuff because he was so like, you're on the wrong path. And then he wasn't, he was on the right path. Just no, it was not in his time. It just came years after. So when I came back the whole Wednesday, Adams was kind of dominating the whole, <laughs> whole world. And then I was thinking, actually, he was like Wednesday Adams because she also an outcast. She doesn't try to fit in the society. She just dressed like no one else, you know, like, and even people laugh at her, she still carries on because she believed that's herself. She's expressing herself. So I kind of build this weird bridge between Edward and Wednesday. We started talking about what's happening in Turkey now, but let's talk about what's happened in Turkish textiles past because mm. you often explore that sort of element in your work mm. and it's I think it's super interesting. I was reading about inspiration from tiles mm. or other folkloric arts or I don't know, is it embroidery? You tell me. It is actually in Turkey it's so easy to go to different regions and then find completely different elements that can inspire you. So I used to have these trips to Turkey, but go to more kind of rural sites, like old villages. And Turkey, there's this tradition, and I hope it will never fade, but every household knows handcraft. Either it's hand crochet, either, you know, like knits or tablecloths. So, you know, they people make things. And then there was always like, there's so much time and effort goes into each piece. So if you go to, let's say, like a village, they could just take all their pieces out and show them to you. And that's what well, it's also the collecting, isn't it? And the, yeah. rep, you know, the respect for the ones that have been handed down. Exactly. And then the ones comes from all generations, always kept in like the most precise condition. And I, I find that just so amazing that there's so much preciousness. I know this word just keep coming, but <laughs> it, it just felt precious. It doesn't feel like something you can just buy anywhere. Like, you know, it just felt really special. So this is a culture that I grow up in. Same goes with the fabrics because they have all these hand-woven meals and some of them I actually work with recently from Gaziantep also affected by the earthquake really badly. And it's not like a fabric you can just ask to be produced next day. Like it just takes like weeks and weeks. It's, it's interesting to hear this because I think maybe if you know about the fashion industry and supply chains, you'll know that there's lots of manufacturing in Turkey. Mm. There's an amazing big denim company called Isco, but there's also, I mean, they grow cotton. There are lots of fast fashion manufacturers as well. Yes, and yet exactly. you're telling a story of a, a far predating heritage of hand-making textile excellence and the beauty of hand of mm. the hand, right? It's very different. So you've got it all, I guess. I, I, guess, I guess it has all that elements. Yeah, it's true that they have like massive factories that produce. And you know the sad part? Actually, I'm an optimistic, but I'm just going to say it. Like all these handcraft, like those hand-woven meals, is just decreasing. It's just because it doesn't make as much money as the those big factories so people just like we just use it losing all these craftsmen and another aspect is the new generation because they don't want to learn these skills because 
they just see it like, why would you spend on a meal like for like a week to produce something five meters? Like it doesn't make sense to them because everything is super fast now. So it just, I find it really sad. Even I think if, if you look into the families, they don't produce those like hand crochets or needlework, like amazing pieces anymore. It's just all gone into time and I believe in some part, yes, that's true, like people need to earn a living, but I believe that it needs to be somehow preserved and kept because otherwise, how are we going to show the new generation like what we had before? I don't want Turkey to be known as a, I don't know, denim factory country because it's not. Like it has so many handcrafted items like from every aspect like from trays to like clothes to needlework and it would be it would be such a shame in if I see it in the future that it will all disappear so I believe as a designer like yes we need to have a balance for sure but we need to understand the price for it as well like when we buy something that's handmade you need to know that that's worth so much more that's someone's a month of work rather than you just buy something that's because it's trendy and it's in, but it's just made in half an hour and God knows how. It's really on the shoulders of the end customer because they need to be aware and they need to make their choices and they need to understand it's not just the price tag. Maybe we don't need to buy, I don't know, 15 tops a year. Maybe we need to buy three. I shall be buying one. Dress mm. by Bora Aksu. Yes, or. Yeah. <laughs> this is so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What a delight to come and talk with you about your craft and your perspective. I really enjoyed it. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you Because I love you